So you had an interesting story for us. Oh that yeah, I think everyone's excited to hear. So. We'll, we'll share my quick funny story. This was college Amber, which according to a lot of my friends was fun time Amber, which is not necessarily me now, but <laughs> I was a little bit wild and crazy in my college days. So I went to a really small college in Kansas and <laughs> we weren't really known for the best sports teams, but miraculously my senior year of college, the basketball team got to go to nationals. So nationals for small schools, not like the big, you know, show, the whatever, <laughs> March Madness thing. No, no, yeah. No. So this was for small schools. So pretty much our entire college drove to Branson, Missouri. So the only thing I know, you know, I'll, I'll always try to attribute something to the Simpsons. So they drive through Branson, <laughs> the boys, Bart and his friend Milhouse and Nelson and Martin steal a car and they drive through Branson, Missouri. So that was my idea of Branson, Missouri, because hell if I knew what Branson, Missouri was when I drove out there. <laughs> but it's exactly what uh, you think. It's a lamer version of like Reno or Las Vegas. And so it's like for churchy old people, but it's their version of Las Vegas. So everything shuts down at like 9 p.m. So, so like you couldn't find anything to eat. There were no liquor stores open, nothing. So Oh my God. Yeah, so we go to support our basketball team and we play the first night and we get trounced. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't remember the exact score, but it was probably like 30 to 140. Like <laughs> something like oh, that. Oh no. So the whole college is devastated because we traveled not that, I mean, it's probably four or five hours to see them play. And we were all staying at the same hotel. So can you imagine an entire college descending on one hotel? <laughs> so oh, no. all that happened was a giant party. And for some reason, my room that I was staying with like three of my friends wasn't with the rest of the college. So we were like on the complete opposite side. And we were staying right next to a like church youth group. <laughs> like choir. I don't remember what it was. And so the huge parties going on. There was like people were puking in the swimming pool. It was like loud. Oh it God. was disgusting. And I actually really wasn't a part of that. I was kind of hanging out with a smaller group. But I had gone to go get more alcohol because we were out and like I said, everything closed at nine, so there was no stores open to buy alcohol. So I was driving back, and the police were there. And I was like, oh, great. So I just, like, pulled up, tried to quietly go to my room, and then all of a sudden I hear, police! Uh and so I go and open the door. Of course, I pretend that i was been sleeping. <laughs> well, can I help you, officer? And he was like, we know that you've been partying, blah, blah, blah. If you guys don't shut it down. And I was like, okay, sorry. And I was like, whatever. Anyway, so I went back and we got ready for bed and we were in bed. And the party, I can't control like 400 college students. There's no way. So yeah. about an hour later, police. And I, by this time, my room, we're asleep. So yeah. I get back up and I'm like, hey, can I help you? And he's like, we warned you, you didn't shut it down. And I'm like, sir, I've been sleeping like my whole room. Like we are in for the night. It's not us. And he's like, well, we know it's you. The people called and complained and gave us your room number that you guys have been really loud. So the police and the, I don't know, the 
guy working at the hotel at like two in the morning made us move (laughs) rooms and so we were put back on the other like a different side of the hotel kind of back where everybody else was and then Mm -hmm. like an hour later to my new hotel room I hear (laughs) police and yet again we are in bed not doing anything and I open the door and I'm like hey yeah can I help you and they're like we have told you numerous times now you're gonna have to leave and I'm like what so it's like I don't know three or four in the morning and so they make us check out and then as I'm going to check out they were like oh and if anybody complains about the noise or anything that's happened you are responsible for paying their room for the night and I'm like excuse me (laughs) so they're like "Yeah, yeah why is that your responsibility no idea so I had to like call my mom because I was like shit I can't afford that so I told them (laughs) and then the police waited for us to like check out and then we got our bags in the car and then they literally told us that we were not welcome back in Branson Missouri and then they followed us to the city line like so they followed us out of town (laughs) so we're like police escorted out of Branson Missouri to say the least I've never been back well, why would you? They sound like a bunch of party ass, poopers. Sorry, town. <laughs> oh my god! But even too, like, how if they're knocking on your door, how do they not hear the other partiers? Or I like, know. how did they not catch that? I don't know, and I don't know why they focused on my room. We were literally the quietest out of everybody. There are people puking yeah. in the pool all over the sidewalk, still hanging out, and it was like, honestly, I'm gonna tell you what I think it was is that it was me and my roommate Kate and then our two guy friends and they Kate and I were white and our guy friends were black so I really think that's what it was and so I think that there was some racism going on there or some those white girls shouldn't be with those black guys I'm not quite you know I can't prove it but it seems very suspicious that we were the only ones on the other side and we were the only ones picked on numerous times like, they saw my friend Mike and I, like, leaving the room. So, I just, I th- I'm Jerks. pretty sure that that's the reason for it. But, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not a huge advocate for Branson, Missouri. And that's the only place in Missouri I've been. Although, or we did go to some caves in Missouri while we were driving back mm. since we had to leave so freaking early. We're like, what else can we do? And so, we, we stopped at some, like, caves and took a cave tour which was pretty cool. So. Nice. But that's my story of Amber being police escorted out of a town. I have a lot of other wild, <laughs> crazy stories, but that one's pretty good. Welcome, everybody, to State of Murder. We are in Missouri this week, the Show Me State. Yeah. Which I don't know why it's called that, but... I don't either. Here we are. <laughs> I have no idea. Who knows? What do what do they want to what do they want us to show them? <laughs> I don't know. Or what are they showing us? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so spoiler alert, Missouri, not a state I've been to. And uh judging by Amber's story, I won't be going to Branson, <laughs> Missouri anytime soon. <laughs> so what are the big cities in Missouri? Kansas City? No. And... Oh yeah, Kansas City, uh Saint Louis. Oh, in Saint Louis. Okay. But yeah, Kansas City is the book. Yeah, it is bigger city right yeah, okay. yeah it is isn't that where the chiefs are yeah they're in missouri right yep and the royals for baseball and the royals. oh i take that back because i've been to kansas city 
a ton oh. of times. I just always think of it in Kansas. Even though I know it's not, but, well, because there's a Kansas City, Kansas, and then you cross over, and then it's Kansas City, Missouri. But I've been to Royals games. Oh, it's like the same city? Just... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. So it's one city that's just in two different states, pretty much. So you can literally have, like, a neighbor, like, one of you's in Kansas, or I, Kansas, yeah. and the other's in Missouri. Huh, how neat. Yeah. Too bad I didn't do Kansas City. That could have been a fun fact for me. <laughs> Sorry, fun fact. Nope, I didn't do Kansas City. You guys all got a bonus fun fact. And I don't think you did Kansas City. Nope, I didn't. I, I went with my tried and true pick the smallest town in the world and tell a story about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, since we're talking about where our stories are, do you want to go ahead and tell us yours? Absolutely. So for this week, I'm going to be sharing about the town of Skidmore, Missouri. So, And one of its actual probably most famous Residents. Although I'm not, I can't prove that. I don't know if that's actually true. But when you look up Skidmore, he's probably one of the only ones that's really written about. So I don't see any other famous people coming from this really small town. Now, the murder happened on July 10th, 1981. However, to understand what happened that day, we have to start at the very beginning and look at who this famous person, Ken McElroy, was. So have you ever heard of Ken McElroy? Sounds familiar, but I don't know. He, he's been covered a little bit. So this isn't like, a. it's a little bit, I had never heard of this crime, so that's why I went with it. So if I don't know about it, I'm choosing it because I want to learn about it. <laughs> so if everybody else knows about it, sorry. It has been covered. It was actually an episode of Drunk History, so I watched that. Oh, nice. I love Drunk History. It was season six, and it was uh, Unsolved Mysteries 2 is the title of the episode and it's the very first story so they have a couple i mean because it's drunk history they don't necessarily get every fact correct so if you listen to mine then go watch drunk history you can see where it differs so a little funness there and then it's been covered on a couple podcasts and then it also has been covered there was one i can't remember if it was unsolved mysteries in 1981 so a while back so this has been talked about a little bit so Ken happened to be number 15 out of 16 children born to Maybell and Tony McElroy. He was born June 16th, 1934, and his dad was actually a tenant farmer. So that's where you kind of live on somebody else's land and in somebody else's house and you work their land for some money. So they moved around from Kansas to the Ozarks in Missouri. All of the children were expected to help their dad with the farming, or at least the boys, of course, were expected to help. The girls, not necessarily. This is in the 30s and 40s. So Ken was not his dad's favorite kid, by the way. In the book, In Broad Daylight, it was stated that Tony had made a list of which his kids were okay ones and which were the ones that you should stay away from. And Ken, of course, was on the top of the list of the ones that you should stay away from. So that's what real loving. What a weird thing to do. I know. We teach parenting and I'm like, nope. <laughs> yeah, please don't rank your children over which ones you should stay away from. Although <laughs> it's uh, terrible. It is terrible. But you know, not that I'm going to ever say any kids, a, like anybody's born a bad seed, but <laughs> Ken's pretty close, to, as close as I'm going to get to somebody that's not, that I just didn't start out great. <laughs> So yeah, but like if your dad's already treating you like like you're just someone to be avoided, yeah. then I mean you're not setting him up for very much success later in yeah. life. So not only was he born 
like 15th. I think he was probably ranked in favorite number 15 because there was one older brother that also wasn't great that Ken kind of looked up to. He spent some time in prison. So I'm guessing that that was the ranking. And the youngest kid, his name was Timmy. He was like the favorite out of everybody, the baby. So I'm the baby in my family. So I kind of get that. So I am not. <laughs> I don't get that. <laughs> I bet Josh Although, yeah, does. Josh did. <laughs> yep, Josh does. I don't know. Although I think me and him each took a parent because like yeah, I'm more spoiled true. by my dad and Josh is more spoiled by my mom. That's totally true. So by the mid-1940s, Tony was actually able to purchase some land So his family moved up just a step. And at that point, they had a two-bedroom house, which 18 people lived in. Good God. I am living in a three-bedroom house with two other people right now during COVID, and it's like the world's smallest place. (laughs) But even, that's so many people. So many people. (laughs) I would lose my shit. That's like what a classroom should be. I know. Like you're only supposed to spend like under eight hours with these people in a confined space. Yeah, exactly. So, so it was said that Ken never did any chores around the house and that his dad was always yelling at him. By the time Ken was in the eighth grade, he had, could pretty much do whatever he wanted. He seldom went to school and he ended actually dropping out in the eighth grade. So, you know, no more school for Ken. What Ken did love when he was growing up was going cooning, which, is that hunting raccoons? I don't really know. So I'm going to say that's what it is. It sounds like it, because they call it like a coonskin hat, right? Yeah. The raccoon hat, So, so I would guess. So he liked to go cooning. He loved raising dogs, so he loved dogs. And he apparently was really good at training dogs to become coon dogs. And the next thing that he was really into was stealing. So those were his top three. There was once a time that he and one of his friends were in a grocery store and he was caught stealing some stuff. The owner ended up calling his dad, Tony, and told him about it. Now, you would think that Tony would punish Ken for stealing, but that isn't what happened. Tony ended up actually showing up at the store with a knife, held it to the owner's throat, and stated if he ever touched his boy again, he would cut his heart out. So maybe the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. It doesn't sound like his dad's the best, but okay. Yeah. So once Ken was able to drive, he got himself a car. So he had to start stealing even more stuff as he needed to buy gas and car parts. So he moved from like stealing just stuff from the grocery stores to taking grain and gas from the farms. So he would drive up in the middle of the night, load up his car from grain silos. So if you're in the Midwest, you totally know what I'm talking about. Uh, So he would load up the back seat of his car. He had removed like the seats and everything and just fill it with grain and then he would go and sell it. So, so just to clarify for other people who don't know what a grain silo is, is that that big tower yes. thing that you fill and it just fills, fills up with, with grain? grain? How yeah. could you steal from it? Like, is there like a chute like at the bottom? there's like little doors and chutes that you could steal from and then it just pours out and you just shovel it in. So the best way is like there's like these little legs that come off of it mm-hmm. that then you can pour it into like semi-trucks and stuff. But... Ah, okay. So... So there you go. There you can picture that. So in 1952, Ken had turned 18, and he ended up marrying Oletta, a 16-year-old girl from a neighboring town. So they ended up, right after that, moving to Denver, where Ken worked construction. And then, however, I don't know what cribbing is, but it's something that hangs up above your head. So there was some cribbing 
form that ended up falling about 30 feet, so I'm guessing some sort of metal, fell 30 feet above him and actually hit him on the head. So he was wearing like a safety helmet at the time or hat, hard hat, whatever you want to call it, but it ended up cutting through the hat and going into his head a little bit. This accident caused severe nerve damage and muscle damage in his neck, and it caused him to have severe episodes of pain and blackouts for the rest of his life. So, Oh, my God. Yeah, so he was pretty injured, so maybe some brain trauma, if we think about it. I mean, we think about what oh, CTE yeah. does now, so who knows? He actually would tell people that he had a steel plate placed in his head from the accident. I don't know if that's true. It's just that something he would share. Ken ended up after that incident moving back to Missouri in 1956. So he was in Denver, Colorado area for about four years. Ken was really sick of not having enough money. So he came up with kind of a scheme to steal not just grain around town from the farmers, but steal their livestock. Okay, we're getting ballsy. I know. So he would scout the farms and find pigs and calves that he would want. He would then come back around two in the morning and end up loading them up into his car. So he would just kind of pick them up, shove them into his car. Then the rumors about Ken started around this time too. Not only about him stealing, because everybody kind of figured out and knew that he was stealing, but also about how violent he became when he drank. And then rumors started going around about how he would rape younger girls. So there was one rumor that a 14-year-old girl who ended up actually dying in childbirth and he had raped her. So he raped her. She got pregnant. She died in childbirth, giving birth to twins. And then a year later, he came back for her sister, ended up raping her. And then she ended up marrying one of his really good cooning friends. So... That's what a rumor. And how old is he at this um, point? He is like 22, like 22, 23. It gets oh worse. God. Just wait. <laughs> Ugh. Okay. So many in the town asked why he wasn't charged with rape or for stealing livestock. However, most just chose to stay away from Ken as much as possible. Even though most people tried to stay away, Ken seemed to draw in the girls around town. So he, I guess... Back then, I've seen some pictures, so I don't see it, but he was apparently kind of a looker, and the girls all kind of were like, hey, yeah, let's start talking to him. I don't know if it was the bad boy image. We were kind of talking about this during with Charles Starkweather. Yeah. Or even, too, like, maybe there's slim pickings in the town. Or it's one of those towns. Yeah, Skidmore and all the surrounding areas are extremely tiny. So Skidmore in the eight, like 40s to the 80s was like 500 people. So it was very, oh. very small. So. Yeah, see, so everyone's probably, like, either related or they've known each other for so long. So true. That it's just like, no. So he was, I guess, not super tall, but pretty good-looking young man. And he had really startling bright blue eyes that drew girls in. So maybe dreamy blue eyes. Girls started talking to him, and he would usually let them party with him. So drinking, getting them drunk. Most of the girls that hung out with him, though, were pretty young in my standards, so usually around 16 or 17 years old. But he would always say to them that they didn't have anything to worry about with him because he wouldn't put advances on them He because they uh-huh. were too old for him. His saying Ew. was, yeah, I know. His saying was, I like my women young and tender. I like that young meat. Oh, it's <laughs> uh, so gross. So gross. Ugh. So we're going to get into that now. Some of that young meat. 
So Oof. one time, Ken set his eyes on a 13-year-old girl. He was in his early 20s at this time, so he was still about 22, 23. Her name was Donna. Now, Donna would like to sneak out of the house to meet Ken and his friends. One night, Ken was with two girls. They were, you know, the girls he hung out with, so they were 17. So he wasn't interested in them. They were drinking heavily, and they ended up stopping at the tavern that Donna's grandpa owned. Ken started asking him about the farm, and then he started kind of pushing his buttons by asking him how Donna was doing. And, of course, her grandpa uh. kind of flipped out with, on him and told him that he needed to stay away from her, otherwise he'd get the law on him. Ken just looked at him and kind of stared and glared at him for a few minutes, not saying a word. Then he took the two girls, and they ended up leaving, and Ken stated to them, we're going to go burn down Donna's house. So grandparents, she lived with her grandparents. Jesus. So when they arrived, they ended up breaking in, ended up not burning down the house, but instead eating, they made some sandwiches and ate in their kitchen. And then Ken was like, you know, they're actually kind of good people. We're not going to do anything to them. So just so you know, a year later, Donna gave birth to Ken's son. So she was like 14. Next in the line of women to get involved with Ken was a 15-year-old girl named Sharon. Now, I do want to give a warning about the next parts of this, uh, as there's a lot of violence against women that happened in Ken's life. And I'm really sure it didn't start with Donna, but it kind of started to escalate with her. So one night, Sharon and Ken were sitting in his truck fighting. Ken told her that she needed to shut up and to help get her to shut up, he ended up pulling out his shotgun. So he told her, if you don't shut up, I'm going to blow your head off. Now, nobody but Ken and Sharon know what really happened or if it was an accident, but the gun went off and it ended up blowing a hole in her chin. So kind of shot her in the face. She ended up surviving. So she was pretty, she had a lot of scars under her chin and around her mouth. The police ended up filing charges against Ken for shooting Sharon. So Ken ended up, because remember, he's still married to Oletta at this time. The girl he married when he is was 18. Is she still in Colorado or is she nope, back she was, No, she's back with him. She, she moved with him. So she's during this whole time. Oh, okay. Well, you didn't mention her anymore, oh. so I didn't know if yeah, she, like, she does, stayed or he just she came Ken, Ken does his own thing. You'll notice that's a common theme with this man is that he finds these women and... Like, kind of just leave some of the others to the side. Well, I'm sure he was still sleeping with her and treating Oletta like a piece of shit. But, you know, just yeah. so you know. So Ken went to his wife, Oletta. He told her that they needed to get a divorce because now he needed to marry Sharon so she couldn't testify against him. So in 1958, Sharon married Ken and became the second Mrs. McElroy. Sharon gave birth to a son named Jerome and a daughter named Tammy. So after Tammy was born, Sharon tried to escape Ken and his abusive ways. And so she ended up going to the police and told them about all of the abuse she had suffered. Sharon and her baby were placed in foster care. Sharon was 19 at this time. While the prosecutors filed charges against Ken for abusing Sharon. Ken, of course, found out where Sharon was, demanded to talk to his wife. The court, shockingly, let him talk to her, and Sharon dropped the charges and left with him. Of course, that mm-hmm. night, guess what happened? Ken beat the ever-loving shit out of her. Yep, sounds about right. <laughs> After Ken had gotten Sharon back, Ken moved in another young girl named Sally, and Sally shared horrible stories about how Ken would beat her and Sharon and then hop from, like, one bed to the next. Sharon ended up having three more daughters with Ken, and Sally had three children with him as well. Oh my gosh. How many kids is he up to by now? 
I think he had five with Sharon. He had one with Donna. And now he has... So that's five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe? And did he have any with his other wife? Oletta. He might have, but I, I didn't see any word of that. My goodness. So. Sam- oh, and then that girl who died, he had a kid with her too, right? No, but her kid, I don't... Oh, yeah. I, I don't know what... It never said... Because that was a rumor, so we don't know about that really. So if that oh, really okay. happened, then they she had twins. I don't know if the twins survived. So... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so Sally ended up running away from Ken, and her kids were removed by Child Protective Services, and they ended up being adopted out. And then she ended up moving mm-hmm. away. So I guess Sally... I don't know if that's a good story. I don't know. I mean, better than... Better than some of the stories we're getting to. Then in 1961, Ken met Alice Wood. She was 15 and she worked at the local drugstore. Alice had a hard life and had moved out of her mother and stepfather's house when she was 13. And then ended up moving in with a friend. So when she met Ken, she was instantly drawn to him. By 1964, Ken left Sharon and their kids and ended up moving in with Alice. So... He continued his abuse with her, and they had three children together. Oh, my God. So during this time, and we are now talking about, like, kind of so, still in the early 1960s, so Ken is in his late 20s, early 30s by this point. Ken's stealing operation was getting more sophisticated. So he had a group of girlfriends. These women would take his stolen livestock and sell it to various markets and auctions using their names so that Ken was never tied to anything fucking using the women left and right this man now the police knew it was ken who was stealing but they could never prove it as they would actually have to catch him taking them like taking the livestock and putting them in their car and during Mm -hmm. that time in missouri i don't know if this is still the case but during that time in missouri farmers were not required to brand their livestock so Uh. So you wouldn't know who he yeah, was stealing from anyway. Yeah, so how do you anyway? prove that pig is my pig and not that pig? So a farmer could be mm-hmm. like, my pig was stolen, go to the auction and say, oh, that's for sure my pig, but how do you prove it? You can't. Yeah. So kind of smart, I guess. In 1970, Ken was charged with 19 felony counts. However, nothing came of them as Ken found out two rules. If you delayed the case long enough that a witness can either disappear or forget what happened then there's no case because there's no witness. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind for a second. Mm. So in April 1972, Alice took their kids and left Ken. She was done, so she ended up going to her mom's house. Ken came and demanded that he give them, so he had one favorite kid. So like his dad had favorite kids, Ken had favorite kids. And this, this was his son named Juarez. So Alice ended up they were staying at her parents house alice ended up when he came to get his son ended up grabbing a gun to defend herself and ken shouted from outside and when she grabbed the gun she accidentally shot herself in the hip and so had to be rushed to the hospital wow okay so i guess ken left at that point maybe because the police came i'm not quite sure why he left without his son but while she was at the hospital ken ended up coming back to the house and demanding alice's family give him his son When they refused, he shot through the window and hit Alice's stepfather, Otha, in the left thigh. The prosecutors again filed felony charges against Ken. Otha refused to drop the charges, and as soon as Ken was bailed out of jail, so of course he gets bailed out of jail by his woman, 
Ken ends up calling and threatening Otha at least once a day. He would threaten to shoot him, his wife, their children. He would go and drive by their house and park outside of their home and just kind of sit there and stare at them. But every time anybody called the police, it's not illegal to sit out on a public street. So, I know, were restraining orders not a thing back in that day? Um, I don't know. They might be. I feel like that I, would I be know, witness I, tampering. Yeah. So Otha stated that Ken believed that everything was the other person's fault. So if he shot you and you pressed charges, it was your fault he had to shoot you in the first place. If Alice complained <laughs> that he had beat her, she was the bad person for complaining. So just, you know, he's a pretty good guy there. Yeah. So on January 10th, 1973, Otha was drinking at the bar and Ken came in with a knife and threatened to gut him if he didn't swear not to testify. Otha wouldn't do it. So Ken left and came back with a gun and told everybody in the bar that nobody would leave until Otha swore. Ken ended up being arrested, so nothing happened. But Ken got arrested again for trying to deter a witness. But the problem was nobody at the bar would stand up with Otha and state that that had occurred. So everybody was scared of Ken. Mm -hmm. Then the case, for some reason, so it was a felony case of assault, what ended up being dropped to a misdemeanor charge. Nobody knows why. And Otha decided not to testify in the case because it didn't seem to be worth it because what misdemeanor is not going to get him in prison for long and he didn't want Ken coming after him. And also, during the statements, Alice gave testimony all about Ken's upstanding character and what a great guy he was. Mm. So I could go on and on and tell you more about this, but I just wanted to sort of set up the backdrop for what comes up uh, in 1981 so you kind of understand the ongoing thing with Ken and how he gets out of things and how he treats his women. So there is one more woman that's important to the story, Trina. However, not that her story isn't important because she totally is a victim of Ken's, just as all the other women were in his life. She was young and was abused just like the rest. She ended up giving birth at the tender age of 14. And instead of testifying against Ken for raping a child, so he was going to be arrested and for her rape and having having a baby there, uh, you guessed it. He divorced Sharon and married Trina. So, Oh, my God. And, you know, all these times, like, Trina had, they had to have parental consent for that marriage, and they got it. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I was like, wait, where are their parents? Because I know this isn't so far back that you didn't need parental <laughs> consent to marry a minor. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. So now we're getting to the big events. On April 25th, 1980, two girls walked into the B&B grocery store owned by Bo and Lois Bowenkamp. Their store clerk, Evelyn, was at the cash register. The teenage girl walked up to pay for her stuff, and there was a little girl around the age of four stood next to her with some candy. After Evelyn realized that the older girl wasn't paying for the little girl's stuff, Evelyn waited for the little girl to bring up her candy, but she didn't. So then the teenager grabbed the candy and put it back. This caused the little girl, because of course, a four-year-old getting their candy grabbed out of their hand and put back and they couldn't get it, caused her to start crying. Mm -hmm. And the two of them left. Evelyn turned to Lois and shared what had happened, because Lois, all of a sudden, she was in the back of the store and heard this little girl crying, so she came out to see what the heck is going on, Um, shared Mm -hmm. what was happening. But right then, an older girl entered, and then Evelyn, Evelyn knew exactly who she was, Tammy McElroy. So if you remember, Tammy is Sharon's daughter. 
So that's one of Ken's daughters. So Tammy yelled that her sister didn't steal anything and started to cause a huge scene. A little while later, guess who comes into the store complaining Mm. and bitching about how his daughter had been accused of stealing. That's right. Good old Ken. So he came into their store holding a knife and yelling at them, accusing them. Nothing that the Bowen camps or Evelyn could say mattered to him. But the bad Mm -hmm. thing was, now they were on Ken's radar. And you did not want to be on Ken's radar. That is when the harassment started. Ken and his wife, Trina, would drive by and park outside their store and their house. Ken tried to even get Lois to fight Trina one time, offering her $100 if she could beat up Trina in the road. Lois didn't go for it. So when the Bowen camps called the police, they stated that until they were broke the laws, there was nothing they could do. Ken and Trina even would go outside of the Bowen Camp's house in the middle of the day or night and start firing guns up into the air. So, so. Oh my god. And that, uh, see that frustrates me. Oh, I know. That there's like nothing the cops can do, like unless he attacks them. I know, exactly. so So this is the kind of bullshit. The town was on edge as they knew that this incident that was going on and building and building was gonna lead and end up in some sort of violence. That violence would occur on July 8th, 1980, when Bo was in the back of his store on the loading dock breaking down boxes. He had noticed that Ken's truck had been parked outside the bar, but he couldn't do it. So the bar was right across the street from their grocery store, and that's like Ken's drinking spot. So he would always be parked out there. So, But there's nothing that Bo could do. Mm-hmm. So when he turned around from breaking down the boxes, all of a sudden there was Ken with a shotgun po- pointed at Bo. Ken asked if Bo had called the police, and Bo had stated he had no reason to. Ken then asked Bo if he was mad at him. Bo replied he wasn't mad at him. At this point, Ken turned to some of the, so there was like four young, like high school boys kind of hanging out back. So he looked over to them, offered them $5 uh, to go get something from the bar, uh, and so they took off. After that, Ken aimed his gun at Bo and shot him in the neck. The boys at this time had run to the bar and stated that Ken was out with out back with Bo and that he was about to thump old Bo good. When they heard the gunshot go off, nobody at the bar raced. Like, so if I heard a gunshot and I knew somebody was in trouble, I'd probably go check it out. But mm-hmm. everybody knew Ken was involved and knew that they didn't want to get on Ken's radar. So their first response was to lock down everything. So they locked everything down and then they kind of started talking to each other. And finally, one of them ended up going to go check and see if Bo was, Bo was okay. Mm-hmm. So he went and checked out on Bo and found him shot in the neck, but still alive. Everyone thought the same thing. If the law had done its job, this wouldn't have happened. Bo was able mm-hmm. to share with uh, the people who had shot him. He kept just saying, McElroy, McElroy, McElroy. <laughs> so they were able to arrest McElroy when they found him. Every, all the police were worried because they thought that it was going to be like gun battle to like get to be able to arrest mm-hmm. him. But he yeah. actually went with no trouble. Trina was with him at the time when he was arrested and swore that they hadn't been in town and that they had been home at the time that Bo was shot. So they were like, who was shot? What was shot? What? 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 Pretending that they didn't know. (laughs) Whatever. Now, Ken was arrested, but he ended up being released. So he was 
put, like, they gave him bail. Now, Mm -hmm. Ken didn't stay out of trouble while he was out on bail. He ended up pointing a gun at a family and was arrested in another county. He was, of course, at that same time released out on bond. Finally, on June 25th, 1981, so remember, so Bo was shot on his, by the way, 70th birthday. So July 8th, 1980. So it took until June 25th, 1981 for the trial to happen. And so remember how adamant Ken was about if you keep going, getting it extended longer and longer and longer, something can happen to witnesses. So that's how long it took. And Bo and his wife were pretty badly harassed during this time by McElroy's whole family. But finally, Mm -hmm. on June 25th, 1981, the trial started and the jury ended up finding Ken guilty of second degree assault and gave him two years. However, there's a weird thing in Missouri. I did not know that. Maybe this is everywhere. I don't know. In Missouri, you don't go to jail right away after the jury finds you guilty um you have a right to appeal so if you're out on bond you get to just leave so like if you're still if you didn't bond out then you go back to jail but if you did bond out you have a right to appeal uh the verdict within 25 days and the sentence isn't actually carried out until the judge writes and files his final decision so ken was out even though he was found guilty and was supposed to serve two years Remember we talked about this last week, right, with my case where we couldn't figure out how he committed another crime yeah. even though he was sentenced. So it might have been the Maybe same thing. Maybe that's some of the same rules. Who knows? So the townspeople were surprised and angry when all of a sudden Ken came out as a free man. So on July 10th, the townspeople had a town hall meeting about what to do with Ken. The police stated, so the police at the town hall meeting stated that the only thing they really could do is start a neighborhood watch. So not really. What kind of bullshit is that? I know. Super helpful, police. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, during the meeting, Ken and Trina were actually at the local bar right across the street from Bo and Lois's grocery store. The townspeople left the meeting and watched and waited for Ken and Trina to leave in their truck. When Ken walked out, he ran up against about 60 people, just kind of hang- milling outside. Ken climbed into his truck, followed by Trina, and that's when the gunfire happened. Ken was shot and killed by two gunshots. So there was more that had been fired, but two hit him. Trina wasn't shot, and she was able to get out of the truck and was very hysterical at this point. The highway patrol responded to the call and were shocked to find that Ken was, in fact, dead. So when they got the call, everybody was like, oh, no, it can't be him, or he's probably the one that shot somebody, and somebody's just misunderstanding what's going on in the hysteria here. Because Ken was Mm -hmm. well-known by, like, highway patrol, the sheriffs, town police, everybody. Mm -hmm. When the highway patrol got there and started doing their investigation and started talking to everybody, so, like, after the gunfire happened, everybody kind of scattered, but there were still some people milling about, and so they started being interviewed, and everybody had the same story. They heard gunfire, they hit the ground, and didn't see anything. They even called the FBI out to come and investigate, and they came away with the same thing. We hit the ground, didn't see anything. Like, I don't know who shot. I didn't see anybody shooting. I just heard the gunfire, fell down to the ground, didn't look up until the gunfire was done. The whole town refused to share who had pulled the trigger. And with no witnesses, just as Ken had shared throughout the years, there couldn't be a trial. So to this day, nobody has been found guilty of the murder of Ken McElroy. Can't say I'm upset about it. (laughs) 
So that's that the story. That was terrible. Of, of, the, of famous Ken McElroy and Skidmore, Missouri. Nice. Thanks. That was a good one. <laughs> Not like good that it happened, but I, also kind of good because it's like. I know. How do you feel about In a way, like these women got some form of. Because I'm sure like now they're free from this dude who mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. raped and molested them when they were all yeah. younger. And they don't have to deal with him. And these kids don't have to grow up with him as their dad. And mm-hmm. like. And know. it's like he probably was gonna. F- it's total vigilante justice, which I'm never for. No, but it's like, but dude, in he this got case- two years for shooting a man in the neck. He got no yeah. years for shooting his girlfriend in the face. He had never spent a day in prison. Yeah, like what? Like how much he stole? How much he harassed an entire ta- an entire like county? Really? Like, everything, and never spent a day in prison. That is outrageous. Yeah. And, like, yeah, I'm not a fan of vigilante justice either, like, with the exception of, like, superheroes in comic books. (laughs) But, like, no. This guy deserves something. Maybe not to die, but, I mean, they told them to start a The neighborhood neighborhood did watch. did they started a neighborhood watching somebody get shot and killed yeah but it's like those things right you like he terrorized the whole town so it was one of those things like if you're you're finally pushed to a breaking point where it's like you got to do something Mm -hmm. because apparently the law isn't helping them out you know so it's almost like domestic violence survivor when they protect themselves you know yeah exactly it's kind of the same thing there was a lot more i could have shared on ken and things that he did like he ended up shooting a farmer in the gut at one point didn't spend any time in prison for that like just there was a lot and there was some more stuff with women and yeah but i i mean the his exploits were in a 400 page book and it was all pretty much just about shit he did and so I had to sum it up, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so now you can watch the drunk history and see what you think. Yeah, I have to look that up. So I'll definitely check that one out. Do you want to share your story? Yeah. So mine's a little interesting this week. Because it's not just about one specific case. I kind of condensed four into one. And you'll find out why as I tell the story. So Saturday, January 19th, 1991. 42-year-old Trudy Darby was closing the K&D convenience store where she worked in Max Creek, Missouri. Around 10 p.m. as she was still closing up, she noticed three men hanging around outside her store. Feeling uncomfortable, as I think most of us would, being alone in a convenience store. She decided to call her son Waylon to come help her close up and stay with her. So Waylon headed over, and when he arrived just 10 minutes later, Trudy was gone. The cash register was open, and Trudy's coat was still there. And so Waylon called the sheriff's department, and when they arrived, they began their search to no avail. Two days later... A report came in from a concerned citizen who heard from a neighbor that gunshots went off at a property near Little Nianga River the night of the abduction. No idea if I pronounced that right. That's okay. I wouldn't know either. I think it's Nianga is what I'm going to go with. 
The citizen took it upon himself to investigate, and when he found blood and blonde hair, he called the sheriff. Which I'm like, okay. Like, you heard from someone that they heard gunshots. I don't know why you'd want to go investigate yourself, because how do you know if the person who shot, like, somebody isn't still there? I don't know. Whatever. He went to look. He found the evidence and called the sheriff. So luckily he knew enough to not touch everything. (laughs) Good. Don't contaminate the scene. Nope. When the sheriff arrived, they discovered hair, blood, and a 38 caliber shell casing near the river. They called in for a helicopter to search along the river after noticing that the flow of water had created like a whirlpool near the bridge. So they were like, okay, anything that headed that way or like followed the flow would either be stuck in that whirlpool or at the very least couldn't have gotten very far. So the helicopter search ended up finding a nude female body about four feet underwater, just under a mile downstream. The body would be identified as Trudy Darby. After an autopsy, the cause of death was two gunshot wounds. One had entered the right side of her head and the other had entered the back and stayed like in her skull. Mm. Police had little to go on and none of their suspects panned out. They still believed, however, that it was someone who lived in the area due to the remoteness of the dump site because it was just kind of out there on the river and basically like everybody they looked at they were like okay let's find every rapist convicted criminal in the area interview them so two years later the police would finally catch a lead jesse rush 17 would confide in a neighbor that he was involved in the abduction and murder of trudy Despite previously confessing this to family members over the past two years who didn't take him seriously. He was 17 when he confessed or 17 when he did it? No, 17 when he confessed. So, so every, he was 15 when he did it? Mm-hmm. Oh, every article, I double checked this like four times. It kept saying that he was 15 when the crime was committed. So it never said his age again. So I'm just kind of doing basic math and that he would probably be around 17 at this point. Yeah. But yeah, they kept saying 15. I had to keep looking, but that's what they said. So like I said, he had confessed previously to family members who didn't take him seriously. They were disturbed, but they were like, "Mm, you're just talking out your ass basically. Which I don't know if I'd ever do that to anybody. If someone told me that they committed a crime, at the very least, I feel like I would investigate a little more. Yeah. <laughs> or like. Although if you cops. didn't see any like questionable behavior. So let's just say like randomly my nephew all of a sudden said that. I'd be like what? Get out of here. Just because it's so uncharacteristic. And also he's so young. So I don't know. Yeah. So luckily the neighbor did take him seriously when he confessed to him and reported him to the sheriff. Around the same time, a former girlfriend of Rush would also report a similar confession. The police finally had a valid lead, and they arrested Rush. When interviewed, he initially denied having any involvement in the crime, but later changed his story. He told them that him, his half-brother Marvin Cheney, and one other individual arrived at the convenience store with the goal of robbing it and abducting Trudy. After they emptied the cash register, they dragged Trudy out of the store at gunpoint and threw her in the trunk of their car. They drove her to a barn near the store where they proceeded to rape and beat her repeatedly. When they were finished, they shot her in the head and put her back in the trunk. They drove to Little Nianga River, and when they opened the trunk, they discovered that she was still breathing. Mm -hmm. They shot her in the head again and threw her body in the river. 
Cheney denied being involved when the police questioned him and said he was at home with his wife at the time. She ended up supporting his alibi, but later changed her story, saying that she had lied because she was so afraid of him. So his alibi went right out the window. I looked for who the third person was, but they never named him or said they found him. I have mm. no idea. And even to, because I got, they did some episodes of Unsolved on this case, and they never, even the article that came from that episode of Unsolved only talked about them, there being two of them, but I also got access to a court document from when Rush tried to appeal everything, and it said exactly what happened, and it was talking about a third person, but they never gave this third person a name. They never really talked about who he was or why he was there. Both men were arrested, and while they were awaiting trial, Rush confessed to three inmates about the abduction and murder of Trudy, and all of them testified against oh, him. Not, okay, now good thing but like we've talked about before like if you're gonna commit a crime just keep your mouth shut like nobody it's a good thing he talked but i'm just saying like what yeah is with if the... he hadn't said anything nobody would have ever yeah, suspected so him crazy ever. yeah and so it makes you wonder like is it a guilty conscience mm-hmm. is it the fact that he wants to like seem tough i don't know but either like way bragging. he kept confessing to people yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's an argument that one of his lawyers made was that, like, dude, he's a young kid. Like, he's trying to seem tough and bigger than he is. Like, of course he would say these things. But it's like, I don't know. He kept doing it. Yeah. So one of the inmates he confessed to was Edward Thomas, who he believed was a jailhouse lawyer, which for anyone who doesn't know is basically someone who studies the law when they're in prison. They don't actually practice law. They're not really a lawyer. They just help out other inmates Mm -hmm. who, like, can't read or aren't familiar with the forms and things like that. But from all that I read, Edward Thomas was not a jailhouse lawyer. He was just another inmate. So I don't know what <laughs> happened. So oh, Rush yeah. believed that Thomas would help him beat the charges against him. So he had lots of conversations with him and even wrote somewhere around 13 letters to him discussing his involvement in the crime. So he was thinking like attorney-client privilege? <laughs> I guess, which... Uh, does not no. apply to jailhouse lawyers, no. even if this guy really was a jailhouse lawyer. <laughs> there is no attorney-client privilege. Stupid so young people. Thomas, yeah, so Thomas turned the letters over to the sheriff's department, and they were all used as evidence in trial. Yeah. In April of 1997, Rush and Cheney were found guilty of first-degree murder and kidnapping, and both sentenced to life in prison without the eligibility of parole. In September of 2017, Cheney died of natural causes at the age of 56 while he was still in prison, and Rush is still serving his time in the South Central Correctional Facility in Licking, Missouri. And yes, that's Licking like the action. Mm. <laughs> like, it's such an interesting name. So, normally, this is kind of where we'd be done because Trudy got her justice, right? Her Her attackers were or at least two of them yeah it was like minus the third whoever that was yeah they were caught and punished and they're still well one of them is still serving time and the other one had to die in prison but there's more to this story that comes from jesse rush's letters in one of the letters to thomas rush hinted that ham and cheney may have committed other crimes an excerpt from the two letters so i have two different paragraphs so they're each from different letters 
And he has really bad grammar and sentence structure, so huh? bear with me. Okay. I just wish my brother would have done like I said at the barn and burnt the bitch up, but that pussy-ass Cheevers and Peril, I don't know what he's trying to say, decided to take the bitch to a fucking river instead. I was too fucked up to argue with him. All I wanted to do was fuck the bitch, then shoot her in the head to watch her brains come out. Sounds cool, huh? If the bitch would not have moved in the trunk at the river, my brother wouldn't have had to shoot her in the head again just to have the cops find a shell. The stupid motherfucker. The only smart thing we did was have Marshall's brother Greg burn the barn. Otherwise, the motherfuckers would have got a lot more on us. I'm glad they don't know everything else we did or I'd be on death row. So my guess is the third guy's name was Marshall, but I don't know. Also, too, they did, I believe, end up burning the barn down. It was just after they dumped her. So there wasn't any other evidence other than, like, her body. So this is still talking about... Trudy. Trudy. I wanted to say Tammy, and I was like, that's not it. Trudy. No. So this is about Trudy? Yeah. So he's saying that. But then at the last sentence of that is what got the cop's attention, where he's saying, I'm glad they don't know everything else we did. Okay, yeah. I'd be on death row. So this is another paragraph from another letter he sent. And it said, I never told you about them other bitches because if it gets round, if it gets found by accident, it can get us involved in killing them other fucking bitches. The cops didn't even know about my brother and me killing any other bitches except Max Creek, which is the city where Trudy's from. Them other bitches in my last letter to you were both like that bitch in Max Creek. We all tortured the bitches, then fucked the dog shit out of them. So first off, he likes the word bitches. He really does. Second off, every single time he wrote it, he misspelled it. (laughs) How did he spell it? B-I-T-H-E-S, I I think is how he spelled it. I don't know. I autocorrected it on my writing, my notes, because it was throwing me (laughs) off because it's not the right word. But he kept misspelling it. And so, yeah, so this is where the cops were like, okay, there's something else going on. Yeah. And so possible theories on who those other women he was referring to were Cheryl Kenny, Angela Hammond, and Diana Brongart. Diana Brongart is thought to be the first victim. She left work from the Twin Peak Mall in Crystal City, Missouri in 1987 and told friends she was headed home to study for a test. Her car would be found in the parking lot when Diana never made it home. Witnesses saw her around 10 p.m. and describe her talking to an unidentified man in the parking lot just before she vanished. He was described as Caucasian in his early 20s, about 5'10 with dark hair, either black or brown, they couldn't tell, and a medium build. When her coworkers were asked about this man, they recall him being the last customer she helped before her shift was over. Some say the man meets Jesse Rush's description, but based on age alone, I would think that he would be eliminated. I think he was eliminated as a suspect because if this happened in 1987 and he was 15 in 1991, there's no way he could be confused for a man in his early 20s. In it, which is what caused me to question. Because he would have been like 12. The age. Right? Yeah. I'm like, my. Mm-hmm. you're asking me to do math at night. So. Yeah. But either way, he would be way too little to be. Yeah. Like, I would get it if he was like 17. You might think he's in his 20s or something yeah. like that. But not any earlier than that. Which no. is why I kept double checking that they meant that he was 15 at the time of the crime. 
And that's How all old I was found. his brother? So his brother was older than him. They didn't give me his age at the crime. It only gave me that he was 56 in 2017. Oh. So I don't know. That's a lot more math than I'm willing to do. But either way, his brother, you could see pictures. Maybe he could have been. Because that would have been what? That would have been around 30 years-ish ago. 87 to 2017. Yeah. So he would have been like 26. So it could have been him. Or Um, Marshall, whoever, whoever the hell that guy is. Yeah. But they're saying that the description looked like Jesse. And since... And if you look at the pictures of Jesse and Martin, they look nothing not alike. anything. Okay. Nothing alike. But they're half brothers, so that, oh, okay. I mean, makes sense why they look like that. So Diana has still not been found, and although her parents have since passed on, her brother is hopeful that one day the family will have answers for her. But it doesn't sound like the police are pursuing Jesse and Martin as a suspect. Okay. So the next victim was Cheryl Kenny, who was 31. And this case does sound very familiar to Trudy's. So she was an employee at a convenience store in Nevada, Missouri. And on February 27th, 1991, just like with Trudy, Cheryl was closing the store around 10 p.m. After she didn't arrive home, her car was found in the parking lot, suggesting that she never even made it in her car. Mm. Two witnesses had heard screaming coming from the parking lot, so it's believed that she was taken outside of the store. A janitor who also worked at the store remembers a man in there just before closing time, but police were unable to determine if he was connected in any way. And I don't know if that was because they didn't know who he was or if it just, like, he wasn't connected to the crime. It didn't give me. It just said he was unidentified. In 2000, a few different remains were thought to be Cheryl, but upon DNA, police were able to eliminate them. One was a man, and the other one was connected to another crime. Police have long suspected Rush and Cheney, but since she or a body has never been found, they and they've never confessed to it, there's no way to really tie them. And that one makes a little more sense, because that was February of 1991 and okay. he was in january and remember that the guys didn't get caught for two, two years. years yeah so that makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense yeah and so the next one is angela hammond who was 21 she was four months pregnant in april of 1991 when she dropped her fiance rob schaefer off at home after they had attended a barbecue together in their hometown of clinton missouri The two planned to meet later after his mother returned home since he was the only one there to watch his little brother. Angela headed to hang out with a friend and around 11.15 p.m. she called Rob from a payphone just seven blocks away from his house. During the call, Angela told Rob there was a suspicious man circling the block in a green Ford pickup. And she was kind of like while they were on the phone, she was describing what he looked like to Rob and letting him know that it was just he was acting weird. The truck pulled up beside her at one point and used the phone before returning to his truck. So for those of you who don't remember, payphones used to come in like a bank. Like it was like a row of payphones. So you could, she could be on the phone and he could also be using the phone. And so the man continued to act suspicious after his phone call by shining a flashlight around the area as if he was looking for something. Rob remembers Angela asking if he needed to use this phone and he said, no, it's okay. Continue your call. Like, I'll try again later. And suddenly Rob heard a scream from Angela and ran to his car to save her. 
He was driving toward the payphone when he saw a green Ford pickup rush past him heading in the opposite direction. He heard what he believes to be Angela calling out for him. He heard the name Robbie be shouted out. He put the car in reverse so fast that in doing so, it damaged the transmission. And he was able to follow the truck for about two miles before his transmission gave out. (gasps) No! And he watched helplessly as the truck drove away, never to be seen again. Investigators looked into Rob after a search for the man in the truck went cold. So they started turning their attention yeah of course to yeah because they were like okay nobody else is seen the story is a little hard to believe yeah but after finding his car and that the transmission was legitimately damaged and he took a polygraph he was cleared then some, they finally found some witnesses that came forward that said that they had seen a truck and a suspicious person hanging around the payphones around that time Based on all the descriptions, the abductor is an older white bearded man with glasses who drove an older model two-tone Ford pickup with a fish jumping out of the water painted on a mural on the back window. Yeah, Dang, that's hecka suspicious. Why can't I talk? That's hecka specific. I'm like, specific. But if it was driving around multiple times, you'd and especially like there's a fish jumping out of the water on the back, you would have to be like, no, this car has passed multiple, multiple times. times. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Trump car I always see. It's the same damn car. It's noticeable. <laughs> so rumors pointed to a serial killer named Kenneth McDuff. He was a man who terrorized Texas from 1966 to 1992, but he was living in Kansas City around the time of the disappearances, mm. but it's not been substantiated that he did anything. And it doesn't sound like he did any serial killing while he was in kansas city it all seemed to happen in texas he was just caught in kansas city and so to this day angela has not been found and there's still a reward for any leads to this case and so for that one they also seem to think that it might have something to do with rushing them although hers is different because she's not from a convenience store she was still alone and Again, the description doesn't really fit unless we know what that other friend yeah Marshall like. looks like, or whoever, mm-hmm. or if they just had someone else with them, or they were wearing some sort of like disguise. I don't know. But that truck is so freaking obvious. Like, what? And is this a big town? I don't understand. I don't know. And I also I should have looked up how close in proximity all three of these. I think they're close enough that that everyone was like, okay, yeah, this totally could have yeah. happened. But also, too, if they weren't able to identify the owner of the truck, it most likely it had to have been stolen, you know? Yeah. And if you kidnap her and take her somewhere, why wouldn't you just torch the truck? Because it didn't say they were in a truck when they were with Trudy. Yeah. That sounded like a car. And so they could be switching vehicles and Mm -hmm. ditching stuff. That's true. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them to steal vehicles at this point like if you're committing the crime of murder and you're comfortable with that yeah you're not gonna have any hesitation stealing a car and so that was my story and so i wanted to share because there was those unanswered things and all these women went missing around like from january to april is a really short window of time for them all to go missing in such a particular way and the only one with diana was because she was a few years earlier I find it hard to believe that she's connected because 
Rush would be so much younger. Like, if she had happened, like, in 92, I'd be like, okay, yeah. maybe they mistook this 16-year-old for a 20-year-old somehow. Like, that might have made more yeah. sense, but... Unless unless it was his brother, because he's, he's apparently significantly older than Rush, and the maybe the friend Marshall, and that might have been their first kill, and they didn't bring because Rush was so little. So then maybe mm-hmm. Rush came in later? I don't know. But then yeah. it also begs to question, like there was that four years or whatever gap between the two and then boom, 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 boom. And then nothing for a year and a half until rush. That seems, I mean, maybe likely, but kind of unlikely too. So if they did do that, are there even more women that they, we that they don't even know about or suspect? Yeah. Or even too, like were they, did they start stop targeting people that would be missed? Yeah. Did they start picking yeah. up people like homeless people or prostitutes or people that generally wouldn't have been yeah. Yeah. cared about enough? Because Higher those were the only people. names. Yeah, because those were the only names that kept coming up in connection with each other. And my thought is just it's so heartbreaking that these families like for Trudy's family, she did get some justice there. But for the others, for Cheryl, for Angela, for Dan, like there's no answer. There's no answer. And even too, like I said, with Diana, her parents died not knowing what, what happened. Like yeah. her, I think her mom died last in 2017, and and now her brother just hopes that they have some answers. And so again, so if you if any of those descriptions seem to fit, or like could have been, I don't know about the older guy with the gray yeah. hair already. Definitely, well, I guess like he's a little bit older, but. If you recognize any of the descriptions, I encourage you to look up these women. Even, too, there's a website called Missing Missouri that has, like, missing posters and things like that. So if you do live in the area, take a look. Because you never know. I mean, it does happen where people are kidnapped and then they make their way back years and years and years later. But, I mean, just for these these families, it's kind of unfortunate because they don't have any answers yeah and even too i believe with angela's family they were just kind of like we we aren't expecting her to come back alive but we do want to know what happened to her yeah especially because she was pregnant as well so that's two lives lost and she was just about to get married and rob did moved away and he and he has a family and a wife now and and some kids so but it's just heartbreak i mean that first love you know and so so that was my story of the missing women of missouri yeah, thanks for yeah. sharing that. Those are stories that needed to be told. Yeah. So, now it is time for our super fun state facts and cities. <laughs> All right. So, I think I started last week because I had my small town. Okay. Did yeah. you want to start this sure. week with yours? So, yet again, I always pick small. Mo- usually, 98% of the time, I probably pick small cities. And randomly, that river comes up in my stories. Too. I didn't share it, but it's mentioned. So maybe it's around the same area. So, oh, okay. Uh, but just so you guys know that multiple places and articles I've read have dubbed Skidmore, Missouri, the creepiest small town in America. So, <laughs> so besides Ken's story of craziness... There's also, and think of how small, so right now, Skidmore is about 250 people. So it's about half the size it was in oh the 1980s. Gosh. But if you look up 
So you can find it. There is an article done on CBS. Doc, there is like a CBS news article done on this town. Medium.com. They all have like stories so you can look it up. But like mm -hmm. there's a ton of really weird murders and that have happened in Skidmore, this small ass town. So in 2000, wow. let's see, there was a brutal killing of Wendy Gillenwater her, by her boyfriend. She was stomped to death by her boyfriend. There was... Remember that story that you told us about, was it in Colorado or New Mexico, where the lady cut the baby out? It was New Mexico, New I Mexico. Believe. So a case like that also happened in Skidmore, Missouri, where a lady pretended to be pregnant. And then oh my goodness. she wasn't. And so she uh, ended up coming across this pregnant woman and ended up cutting out her baby. And the baby survived, but the mom passed away. Branson Perry, in 2001, he just disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to him. Huh. So, and all of these things have happened in, like, the last 20 years. So there's McElroy. There are just, like, tons of random... Oh, and then, like, there was a whole bunch of, like, families killing their entire families. In the 1880s, that happened. In 1910, that happened. In 1974, that happened. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, um, there was a, in, let's see, in 2013, there was a guy that was convicted of sexually assaulting a whole bunch of kids. There was randomly a reverend who took a person and tried to give them sex reassignment surgery in a hotel room that didn't go well. Like, so, yeah, no, Skidmore is, like, seriously the creepiest small town ever. Let's mark that as places to not go in Missouri. <laughs> I know. So we got Branson and Skidmore. Oh, my goodness. So there you go, Skidmore. I was trying to figure it out because there was a statistic that said one year there was over 16 severely violent crimes that had happened in Skidmore. And if you have a population of 250, and if you think at least minimum there's two people involved in a violent crime, the person that's the, vi the perpetrator and the victim, so that's like minimum 32 people, which is what, almost... 20% of the town in one year was involved in violent crime. It's so weird. But then God. again, you have the McElroy family, so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we had 47 children. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for sharing. My city. So because I took my story took place in a lot of different cities, I decided to just focus on Max Creek, which is where Trudy was from, because she was the only case that was solved and okay. she was kind of the main starting point of this so max creek what i found that it's a small town as well i think their population is like 244 like oh. it's little and so what was interesting about it is for a long time max creek had one of the most infamous speed traps in the nation with a strictly enforced 45 mile per hour speed limit along us 54 which i believe is a highway that kind of runs through it's like a east west highway that goes from kansas state line to illinois state line so it runs all the way through and it currently has the speed limit along that is normally like 65 on either side of the town. But in that town, it was 45. Yes. So in 
1995, this practice ended when the state of Missouri passed a law prohibiting cities and towns from collecting more than 45% of their total revenue from speeding tickets because Max Creek reportedly had been collecting 85% of its revenue from speeding tickets in that area because they were getting people. Because you're going from 65 to all of a sudden 25 miles That is hilarious. (laughs) As you're driving through this town. Yeah, so apparently the police department later resigned as well, along with the mayor after all of this happened, because this town did not do well in the 90s. In 1997, they actually had so many like uh, financial woes going on after a state audit that they had to declare bankruptcy. (laughs) So yeah, this poor town did not do so hot (laughs) with everything. But yeah, but that was Max Creek. You know, there's also a town in Kansas that does that exact same thing. And I have been stopped numerous times because of that. So that's a Midwest small town freaking thing. Concordia, Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) Also, too, I did actually pull up a map and look up where those cities were Mm -hmm. that I talked about in my story. So Nevada, Clinton, and Max Creek, Missouri are all relatively close to each other so they don't seem all that far because max creek is actually near lake ozark which is why i think that river connected but the other two are a little farther west the only one that doesn't match up would be crystal city because that's really close to st louis so it's definitely like a lot farther away so because i think from nevada to crystal city would be about like five hours or so like it's a pretty distance whereas the other ones are all all close interesting just as another fact about it so for missouri a fact that i thought was kind of funny was during abraham lincoln's campaign for the presidency way back in 1860 a dyed in the wool democrat which i don't know what that means do you know what dyed in the wool like like dye like clothing dye i don't know what that means democrat named valentine tapley from pike county missouri swore that he would never shave again if abraham lincoln was elected And he kept his word, and his chin whiskers went unshaved from November of 1860 until he died in 1910. And it ended up getting up to, it was at a length of 12 feet 6 inches when he died. Whoa. Because he refused to shave because Abraham Lincoln became president. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. Adamant man, maybe we should have said that. Come up with something for Trump, but dyed in the wool means permanent or firmly established. Okay, there you go. He was a permanently established Democrat and did not want Abraham Lincoln to be president, and he was so he refused. He didn't, but that's a long time. That's like what that is heck a long 50 time. years, yeah. 60 years of growing a beard. He made 12 inches that's like a foot of beard, right? It's like that a doesn't, foot. I feel like it. I feel like ZZ Top's beards were longer than that, though. Maybe. I didn't say it was record-breaking. I no, just said it was just, long. That is long. Oh, I bet it was so scraggly and gross-looking. Ugh. Ooh, My brother's then, beard like... is really long right now, and I freaking hate it. So I told him he needed to get some beard oil because it was looking all scraggly and dry. <laughs> I'm so nice to my brother. I'm like, oh, you look like crap. Get, get some beard oil or something. It's just like, Ugh. So hopefully he doesn't listen to this episode. He doesn't listen to every episode. <laughs> so hopefully he just skips through Missouri. I'd found out why it was called the Show Me State, but then I looked at the other fact. Oh, 
Oh, here. So it's called the Show Me State in 1899 when Congressman Willard Duncan Vandeveer stated, I'm from Missouri and you got to show me. I'm guessing that's how he said it. <laughs> what the hell is that even mean? But also show them what? What? Like, what the hell are you talking about, sir? Be more clear. Politicians and their weirdness. And also are you trying to say that just because you're from Missouri, like, you're not going to listen to facts. You need to be shown them. Yeah. Like, that I bet that's what it is. You have to prove it. You have to show me. Oh, God. Interesting, Missouri. Ugh. But it's been real. It's been a good time researching the cases in this yeah. state. Next week, we are going to be in Iowa, right? Yes, Iowa. Yeah, another little state in the Midwest. I think Iowa is. It is, is, still it is the in Midwest. the Midwest, right next to my hometown, state of Nebraska. Yeah, so we're going to have some more cases for you next week but thanks for listening to us don't forget to like and follow us on facebook and on instagram at som podcast if you have any corrections or questions or just want to say hi email us at state of murder podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and don't forget to check out our blog on www.stateofmurder.com for any bonus content. Sometimes we post pictures, links to different resources that we mention in the episodes, and little summaries or uh, the resources that we use to research these cases. So that way you guys can look for yourselves if you want to read more into it. Because because we try to keep the episode at a reasonable length. We're not trying to do like two-hour episodes for you guys. Some of the stuff, we leave out some of the smaller details that aren't super relevant but if you'd like to know more please we encourage you to do your own research that'd be great absolutely so yeah so we'll see you next week when we hit iowa bye bye